This week on A Scary Home Companion, the blood-soaked scarecrow of the heartlands, a monster in the closet, a girl psychotically obsessed with numbers, and the legend of baby-snatching Sweet Jane. It's a quartet of sinister tales called Bedtime Stories for Weird Kids. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music and mayhem, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales and terrible truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. Once there was a girl named Victoria. You probably know somebody who's like Victoria. She was sweet and smart and cute as a button. Aside from a somewhat peculiar love of numbers, Victoria was just your average girl next door. Until one Halloween night when she disappeared and stayed disappeared for four days. When Victoria came back, she was different. She was sullen, withdrawn, borderline catatonic. She barely talked. Only with the use of drugs and hypnosis could they get her to say what had happened. And even then, all she would tell them was, Men in masks took me away, and they put something inside of my head. That is all she would say. Other than that, all she did was count to four over and over and over again. One, two, three, four. There was no way she could go back to school, not like this. So her family sent her to a special school, the kind with locking doors and padded walls. The doctors there said she may have a mass in her brain, a tumor perhaps but they could never know for certain without opening up her skull. At the special school, they gave Victoria a chalkboard to use, and she covered it with numbers, one, two, three, four, over and over again, in different patterns, arrangements, grids, always the same four numbers. She went past the edges of the chalkboard and decorated the walls, the ceiling, and the floor with one, two, three, four. And when she ran out of chalk, Victoria bit the tips of her fingers and wrote numbers in her blood. She was counting along with a thing in her head, you see. There was inflection in her numbers when she spoke, but none of the doctors could ever decipher it. Victoria stayed at the school with padded walls for four years, three months, two days, and one hour, which, either by coincidence or by fate, happened to be Victoria's birthday. At 12.34 on April 4th, she escaped. She killed four people on the way out, each one stabbed one, two, three, four times. She counted as she did it. She ran through the woods back towards town, back towards her home. She stuck to the shadows, she avoided being seen, and she managed to make it all the way back to her old house. She tried the knob one, two, three, four times. She knocked one, two, three, four times. 
And then a woman opened the door, but this woman was not her mother, not Victoria's mother at all. And her whole family, they had moved and they had not told Victoria. So there was a new family living in her house, a mother, a father, a son, and a little girl. Victoria pointed at each one in turn with the tip of her knife. One, two, three, four. Before stabbing each one of them. One, two, three, four times. The voice in her head was counting along with her. They counted together. One, two, three, four. And they went out into the night turning onto every fourth street, stopping at every fourth house, knocking four times, and counting the number of people inside the house. Each time there were four, just as the voice told her there would be. When the police finally caught Victoria, she was in the fourth house of the night, on her fourth set of four. She was using blood to write numbers on the walls because she had no chalk. Victoria was looking for her family. She knew that they were out there. She knew the voice in her head would lead her to them if she just followed the numbers. From street to street, family to family, house to house. No matter how many houses she had to visit. Let's go. 
by. For someday you'll be the one to die. And when death brings his cold despair, ask yourself, will anyone care? If you hail from anywhere in the Midwestern part of America, you have no doubt heard the children's nursery rhyme about the bloody scarecrow of the farmlands, Mr. Nix. First part of it. Mr. Nix, Mr. Nix, killed by one, but murdered by six. A troubled young man who lived in the sticks encountered a problem his scythe couldn't fix. When he crossed paths with one of those cliques made up almost entirely of deranged lunatics, they shot him stone dead with a Colt 46 and strung him up high on a scarecrow's crucifix. When he swam back over the river Styx, there began the story of old Mr. Nix. But you may not know the legend behind that nursery rhyme. Emerson Prescott Nix had come from bad stock. His mother had long ago been run out of town by the good Christian folk for her witchcraft. The widow Nix claimed not to be a witch, but they disagreed. The widow Nix also claimed to be barren and then gave birth to Emerson, which proved her wrong again. Emerson was a gaunt boy and none too bright. They say she used to make him sleep in the barn, and late at night he would slip away, stalk around the town, looking through windows and watching how other people lived, how normal people live. Emerson was a lonely boy, but make no mistake, he was a mean boy. He killed animals just to see what it sounded like when they screamed. He stalked local girls. He ghosted, he waited, he watched, and one night, he watched the wrong people. At the time, he couldn't have been more than 14 or 15 and had a mental age well shy of that. But he was ugly, he was creepy, he was stupid, and he was the son of the witch. So a gang of young men decided to make an example, and they shot him down. They covered Emerson in rags, pulled down a scarecrow from the middle of a field, and tied him up on that wooden cross. They left him there in full view as a message, and it was a message that the widow Nix received loud and clear, and woe be unto them for what they had done to her boy. The widow Nix had been of good temperament when the townsfolk had run her out, because she most assuredly was a witch, that she had not unleashed the fury of her witchcraft upon those good Christian folk was a testament to her good nature, but this was so much different. As her boy's bones bleached in the summer sun, the widow Nix planned out her next move. It was a blood sacrifice, and it was going to give her vengeance eternal. She took the only thing that she had left in the world, the body of her dead son, and she turned it into a weapon. She turned it into something truly horrible. 
Using bundles of corn silk, she twisted them into threads and twisted those threads into ropes and twisted those ropes around the core of her son's skeleton. She used arcane, ancient knots like the gallows square, the devil's hitch, the old world loop. And she tied the corn silk ropes and the skeletal remains into a shape that looked somewhat human. Long, thin arms, longer, thinner legs, thick knots at every joint, and a dreamcatcher netting for a chest. The grieving mother had turned Emerson's remains into a scarecrow, and on top of that scarecrow, wrapped in old dusty leather, was his bullet-shattered skull. She cut tiny holes into the leather to allow the grinning teeth and hollow eye sockets of Emerson to show through. And when her work was done, the widow Nix slashed her own throat and allowed her blood to soak into the corn silk and spill across the bones. She rubbed a handful of her blood across the front of his leather mask and she whispered to her son, Make them pay. That was the night Mr. Nix was born. Whatever remained of his humanity, assuming that he had humanity within him to begin, was lost to the winds. His mother had let him loose on the world with a taste for blood, but no way to ever truly satisfy it. He was doomed to wander the farmlands, searching for revenge on those who had wronged his family and his mother and himself and making them all pay. And if he could not find those responsible for his death, then he would settle on spilling the blood of whoever was unlucky enough to cross his path. What's that sound outside your window? Maybe it's the old skull and bone scarecrow watching you. Maybe it's Mr. Nix. A Scary Home Companion is brought to you by The Strange Tale of Hector and Hannah Crow A spooky bedtime story suitable for all ages Written by yours truly Available through Casa de Snapdragon Press Or, if you're in Florida, just swing by my house Nature lovers and antique collectors alike Flock to the sleepy town of Hawthorne, Oregon its long and storied history makes it a fascinating West Coast gem. But an unusual occurrence mars this quaint setting. In the fall of 1898, a rash of stillbirths plagued Hawthorne. This tragedy was unfathomable until it was discovered that each of the births were attended by one woman, a midwife called Sweet Jane. The kindly old woman, it was discovered, had faked the deaths of twelve babies so she could spirit them away to her basement and keep them as her own. So that she wouldn't be caught from their crying, Jane cut out the tongues of the babies. When the townspeople found out, they hung her at the edge of the woods and left her corpse for the wildlife. According to legend, she has haunted the woods ever since, still searching for children to take as her own. 
I've come here to Central Oregon, to the alleged hometown of Sweet Jane, to talk to several brave young women who claim to have had personal encounters with what they believe is the evil spirit herself. I must make very clear here to our listeners that these girls stepped up to warn others with their experiences, and in no way were these interviews coerced. Ten-year-old Samantha has a tale that would send chills up the spine of any parent, and yet she does not live in fear. There's a funny lady who lives in my closet. She comes out when Mummy goes to bed. Her face is all crooked. One night, Mummy surprised the funny lady. Her eyes turned inside out, and she screamed and ran back into the closet. Mummy looked, but she wasn't there anymore. The next day, a nice man came to our house and went into my room. He smelled weird, and he made my room smell weird. The Hmm. next day, the funny lady doesn't live in my closet anymore. But she still comes up to my window. 11-year-old Ashley was found wandering next to the highway six hours after she disappeared from her own bed. I don't remember going outside. I was sleeping and then I was walking in the woods. The old lady was holding my hand. She said she had something to show me. I asked her what. She said, shh. That's when I saw her mouth was full of blood. Fawn is 12 years old. Her family is still reeling after the disappearance of her younger brother, Mark, late last year. I still see my brother. He stands right at the edge of the woods, waving at me. The old lady won't let him come any closer. He smiles, but I can tell he isn't happy. He's scared and sad. Remember to go slow and clear, okay? Most encouraging, or disconcerting of all, is nine-year-old Rose, who seems so used to these unusual events that it is as normal as anything else. She always came out of the woods. Sometimes she brings other kids. If mom and dad are asleep, we play hide-and-seek or skin the cat. Uh, Is that a game? Sort of. Did she want you to go in the woods with her? Oh, all the time. I just don't like the woods. They're filled with dead people. Ghosts don't exist. Sweet Jane's otherworldly presence in Hawthorne isn't real. Scholars and skeptics abound. But according to the children of this small town, ghosts are very real. These girls have the emotional scars to prove it. This is Marianne Simpson for A Scary Home Companion. So I sit back down and then I recall it. Then I feel a little. 
I grew up on the very edge of the Oregon coast, so close to the ocean, I probably could have thrown a rock and hit it from my front yard. On the backside of the property in the whole neighborhood was the lush edge of Oregon logging country. We had a modest two-story house, my family and I. My bedroom was upstairs. It had the sloped, sort of slanted ceilings, which I would have hated if I was a grown-up, and that's why my mom and dad didn't come upstairs very often. But being a kid, I never bumped my head on it. The other end of the upstairs was the attic, which I always avoided. I don't have a reason. It just struck me as kind of creepy. Not anywhere near as creepy as the closet door at the foot of my bed. I was terrified of that closet. I was sure, I was positive that someone or something was in there. And I guess it's not that unusual for a kid to think the boogeyman lives in their closet. But I was truly convinced that in my case, it was true. I remember every night I would grab up a big fistful of pillow in each of my hands and press it against my ears, thinking, I don't know, maybe if I didn't hear it, it would go away, or if it thought I was asleep, it would pass me by. But eventually it bled over into the rest of my life. Sleepwalking, sleep-talking, night terrors. I had no idea how bad it was until one summer when we went back to Illinois to stay with some family. This was pretty common every summer. We would go back to Illinois and stay usually with my Aunt Elaine and Uncle Chuck and my cousins on their farm. When I was there, I shared a room with Chris. He was my cool older cousin. One morning, I noticed that he was shuffling around, looking very tired, and I asked him why. And he he told me, I'll never forget this, he said, I can't sleep because you keep screaming and crying and pointing at the closet. All things considered, he was actually pretty cool about it, but I was terribly embarrassed. Even more so when my Aunt Elaine chipped in with a story of her own. She told me how a few nights before she'd woken up in the middle of the night from a squeaking sound outside of her door. So she comes out onto the landing, and she sees that I'm sitting in a rocking chair. I've dragged this rocker over to the very top of a very steep flight of steps. I'm just sitting there, rocking back and forth, staring down the steps at the front door. She asked me what I was doing, and I I told her, she says... She says that I told this to her. I have no recollection of it, nor have I ever. But apparently, I looked up at her with my eyes still closed, and I said, I'm just waiting. Which is super creepy, yeah, but there was no real evidence, no physical evidence that anything weird was going on at all in my closet, in the upstairs, the house, anywhere. The few times that... I worked up the courage during the day to go into the closet. I found it to be a normal closet. It was sort of small, a couple of feet deep, maybe six feet long. It ran 
all the way to the edge of the slanted ceiling. And that back wall, which I tested more than once, was just a piece of plywood held in place by a few loose nails. I could put my hand against it and shake it, and it rattled. I knew that sound. It was the same rattling I heard every single night coming from the closet. Also, there was the fact that no one else in the house thought anything was wrong. My little sister was fine. My mom and dad were fine. My Aunt Carol, who lived with us, she was fine too. Sure, once in a while there was an odd incident. Lights being turned on when we thought they were off, or lights being off when we thought they were on, windows we thought were locked that were standing open, things missing, things moved, things lost, and then found again. But surely this couldn't be any different from the chaos of any other normal house, right? And then it came time to move. It was moving day. I was about 10 verge of 11, and my family was moving across the country to Florida, the land of the skunk ape. I had always avoided the attic, as I mentioned, for no real reason. It was just creepy, you know, but on moving day, I had looked in that attic, and I saw that it had been completely cleared out. No more boxes or old clothes or furniture. It was empty, and it wasn't so creepy without all that junk in there, so... I went into the attic to look around. Against the far wall, I saw something. Something caught my attention. I got closer. I got down on my knees. And I saw that it was a crawl space. Really narrow. Maybe maybe 18 inches across. Maybe 24. Just this little aperture between the outer wall of the house and the inner wall of the bedroom. I was small enough. And on this particular day, I was brave enough. I realized that this would be my one chance to see the back of my closet from the other side. And if I didn't do it now, I would never be able to do it because I was never going to come back there for the rest of my life. So I decided to crawl into this space and see what was down there. It was claustrophobic, even for somebody that wasn't claustrophobic. But I kept on, and it only was a few feet up, and on the left I saw that, that piece of plywood that was held in place by just a few old nails. The nails were just hammered over into a hook, just holding the wood into place. From this angle, it would only take a few seconds to turn those nails and remove the wood entirely. That would have been disconcerting enough, but then I got distracted because just ahead of me, I noticed that the, the crawl space opened up into, well, a sort of a small room, for lack of a better term. Apparently, nestled behind the walls of my bedroom was a smaller room. It was maybe six or eight feet long and four feet across. And in this room, there was a wadded up sleeping bag there was a half burned candle there were some matches there were several empty boxes of chalk when I sat back and looked around the room and I looked at the walls I saw chalk marks everywhere over and over again in crazy patterns grids the same thing one 
two, three, four. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of A Scary Home Companion. Today's episode was written and directed by Nathaniel Hensley and produced and edited by myself, Carl Offenberg. The first song you heard was The Hearst Song by our friend Rusty Cage. Check out more of Rusty's music at rustycage.bandcamp.com. If you'd like your music or content featured on our show, shoot us an email at ascaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and recorded for us by the very talented Chelsea Oxendine, who also recorded the second song played this evening titled come play check out more of chelsea's music on her youtube channel chalson that's c-h-a-l-s-e-n our interviewer marianne simpson was played as always by the wonderful jamie hensley hey thanks again for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe and share with your friends 